This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. More than $20 million has already been spent on Wisconsin's race for governor, and Election Day is still months away. A slate of GOP contenders are looking to face off against Democratic Governor Tony Evers, and campaign finance groups are already spending large sums. The Wisconsin Democracy Campaign tracked about $11 million of the spending in support of Evers and around $10 million coming in from pro-Republican groups. For comparison, around $93 million total was spent on the Wisconsin governor's race in 2018. The Wisconsin Department of Justice announced today that it will begin training 12 critical instance response teams that will support schools during active shooting incidents and other crises. Attorney Attorney General Josh Call praised the program as a, quote, comprehensive approach to school safety. Operated by the Office of School Safety, These new teams will be made up of volunteer law enforcement officers, psychologists, social workers, nurses, school safety workers, and others. They will be trained in responses designed to minimize the psychological impact of critical events, which the Wisconsin DOJ defined as sudden and unexpected incidents, which can cause trauma within a school community. Full implementation of the program is expected in the fall. Wisconsin is the first state to launch regional critical instance response teams statewide. Wisconsin set the record for a total number of people employed, according to new preliminary data released by the Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development. Employment reached a high of more than 3 million in May, and it's the sixth month in a row that that number has grown. Wisconsin's labor force participation rate in May was 66.5%, more than four points higher than the national average. Unemployment was just under 3%, a slight increase from since the historic low seen in April. Another severe storm rocketed through southern Wisconsin last night. Tornadoes were spotted in Toma and Boston. The tornado near Toma downed trees, power lines, and overturned multiple semis. Interstate 90 was shut down for approximately three hours, according to the Associated Press. Monroe County issued a state of emergency in response to the storm damage. This this comes in wake of Monday storm. This comes in wake of Monday storm, which resulted in damage and left nearly 25,000 people without power. Wednesday's storm briefly halted Madison Gas and Electric power restoration efforts and increased outages. Today, around 150 MG&E customers are still without power. Restoration efforts are focusing on incidents that affect multiple customers. The fight to reopen the restaurant Paisons may be at an end. The Wisconsin State Journal reports the 12-story downtown building, which houses Paisons, has been closed three times in the past year over safety concerns about the building's structural integrity. It was most recently closed last week, which may be permanent since the owner is seeking to demolish the building. Paisons restaurant's owner, Wally Borowski, held a wake for his restaurant on Tuesday evening. Borowski told the State Journal, quote, I want to leave. I want to do it now. 
We just want to get something so we don't lose our entire investment. We want to walk away with enough money to do another Paisans someplace. A decision on a demolition permit will be made by the city officials in coming weeks. Meanwhile, Broski and his landlord are in settlement talks because of an ongoing lawsuit. The Madison School District is no longer requiring students to wear and staff to wear masks indoors. The change comes as summer school begins next Monday. Superintendent Carlton Jenkins announced the change in a Wednesday email, writing that Madison schools are in quote, a much better position than we have been since the start of the pandemic. Jenkins says the policy changes in line with the recent CDC guidance and following the unanimous recommendation of the district's medical advisors. Masks are still required for people showing respiratory, respiratory symptoms, those who have been in close contact with someone who tested positive for COVID-19, and those recovering from COVID. And now we move on to today's top stories. Last month, WORT reported that Dane County had filed a lawsuit against more than 30 companies for their contribution to creating products containing PFAS chemicals. Today, Dane County is filing another petition around PFAS, but this time it's to get out of more stringent or more possibly duplicative testing at Truax Field. WORT producer Neg Weggehout has the story. Dane County is suing the State Department of Natural Resources, or DNR, over requirements to test for PFAS, a family of forever chemicals known to cause a bevy of health issues. A petition filed by Dane County against the State Environmental Agency argues that the county should not have to jump through an extra set of hurdles to mitigate PFAS. Dane County District 6 Supervisor Yogesh Chala breaks it down best. The DNR issues stormwater permits for, I believe this is a a point discharge uh, at the airport. And what the stormwater permit says in the renewal is that there has to be uh, PFAS testing uh, conducted as part of that. Um, And what the county is saying uh, in their appeal of this permit is they are saying that they have a remediation plan that includes uh, PFAS testing in it. So they are trying to not do it as part of the stormwater permit, but trying to do it as part of the remediation plan. The petition specifically concerns stormwater at the Dane County Regional Airport. There are around 14 miles of storm sewers at the airport, all of which end up in Starkweather Creek and eventually into Lake Monona. PFAS contamination in Madison stems from Truax Airfield at the Dane County Regional Airport. Because the chemicals are forever and don't break down in the environment, they found their way into the city's water cycle, drinking wells, and lakes. A 2021 report from the DNR finds that Lake Monona, Wabisa, Kaganza, and Upper Mud all contain elevated levels of PFAS and were present in Lakes Mendota and Wingra as well. Both Starkweather Creek and Lake Monona currently have fish consumption advisories due to elevated PFAS contamination. Amy Tutwiler is the attorney representing Dane County. She says Dane County is already testing for PFAS under the state's spill laws, and a remedial investigation is ongoing. She says the DNR's additional rules for stormwater permits add extra complications to that process. 
When Dane County applied to renew the stormwater permit for the Dane County Regional Airport, the DNR requested PFAS testing, which prompted this petition. The Wisconsin National Guard completed part one of their remedial investigation in April of this year, and the National Guard is now formulating the data collected. But would the testing from the remedial investigation meet the standards for the stormwater permit? Chala says that nobody really knows. As we need to find out what current testing, PFAS testing, is being conducted um, at the airport, how those results are being shared with the public, and if the testing that we're conducting right now uh, meets, exceeds, or does not meet Uh, the standards in the stormwater permit. So that's what we need to get to the bottom to. In this petition, Dane County claims that if the DNR stormwater regulations stay intact, it would cost the county a, quote, substantial, end quote, amount of money and would probably delay the tests already happening at the airport. The petition was filed without the prior knowledge of the county board, says Supervisor Chala. In fact, Chala says that he did not even learn about the lawsuit until the day after it was filed. This falls under the, the, the county executive's domain and, uh, among administration. So administration has the statutory authority to uh, file these, these types of appeals. Um, that's under their purview. Um, but we do pres- provide oversight for the county as a board. So we're going to go look into this more. And, um, you know, this was brought to our attention uh, June 1st. So as it was brought to our attention, we're moving as quickly as possible to work through it in our committee process as soon as we can. District 24 Supervisor Sarah Smith says that she has both concerns and questions about the decision to sue the DNR and that the county should be doing everything it can to ensure the mitigation of the harmful chemicals. Supervisor Chala says that he just wants everyone to be safe. We need to do PFAS testing that meets or exceeds the standards that are set forth in the stormwater permit. Whether that happens under our remediation plan, whether that's a process that the the county is undertaking and owning themselves, or whether that's done as part of the stormwater permit, the important thing to me is that the PFAS testing is done and that those results are reported quickly to the public. The issue will next be discussed at the county's Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee meeting next Thursday. Both the DNR and Executive Parisi did not respond to requests for comment by airtime. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wookiehout. Last Tuesday, around 10 p.m., an Asian UW-Madison student was attacked by strangers near campus. In response, a rally against hate crimes toward Asian people is planned for tomorrow. WORT reporter Leila Ma has the story. On Tuesday, June 14th, an Asian male PhD student at UW-Madison was attacked on University Avenue, close to the UW-Madison campus. The victim is a PhD student at UW-Madison. In a post shared on UW-Madison Reddit, he wrote that he was attacked by five strangers on University Avenue, pulled to the ground, and punched in the face. He was left bleeding from his ear. Another person of Asian heritage was attacked Tuesday night, only a few blocks away, and by attackers who fit a similar description. Both incidents were reported to the city of Madison Police and are listed online in Chief Burns' blog. A spokesperson for Madison Police did not return a request for comments by broadcast today. 
UW Medicine put out the press release today, saying that they had been made aware of quote recent act of violence and aggression against students near the UW Medicine campus. In the press release, UW Medicine officials wrote that this reports came from members of Asian, Pacific Islander, and Dice American communities, and that UW and Medicine police are investigating. In response, the UW Medicine Asian Students Community is organizing a protest and rally against Asian hate that is planned for tomorrow, Friday, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Protesters will march from the Capitol steps on the State Street to Library Mall. Organizers say that they are aiming to raise awareness against the racist attack against Asian communities. I spoke to one organizer of tomorrow's rally who requested she be anonymous. We want to raise people's awareness that Asian hate is there, and also Asian students feel not safe in the campus areas. We want the UW Medicine to really create an inclusive and safe environment for all of the students, especially Asian students. Everyone is welcome, and thanks a lot for everyone to stand up with Asian people. This attack comes after several other anti-Asian attacks on the UW Medicine campus. Last October, a man spit on an Asian American student while referencing COVID-19, and in November, an Asian student was assaulted while being called an ethnic slur. Stop API Hate is a national organization that tracks hate crimes, violence, and discrimination against folks who are Asian Americans and Pacific Islander. Over almost a two-year period in 2020 and 2021, the organization received nearly 11,000 instances of hate nationwide. According to the report, physical assault was the second-largest category of total reported incidents. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Leila Ma. It's now 6:20 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Yesterday, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency announced new health advisories around PFAS chemicals. Warning that nearly any amount of PFAS is cause for concern. To learn more about these new health advisories, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Christy Remicall, associate professor of civil and environmental engineering at UW Madison. So, Christy. PFAS. We've spent a lot of time talking about it here, and even just earlier on in this show, we were talking about PFAS. So we don't really need to go over all the basics here. But you've spent a lot of time studying PFAS here in Wisconsin. So tell me, how prevalent is PFAS here in the state? And going off of that, how do we compare to other states as well? Yeah, exactly. My group studies PFAS mainly in surface waters here in Wisconsin. So we've done a lot of work in rivers around the Great Lakes、um, and other sites here in Madison as well. PFAS are, are everywhere.、Um, I think we've only had one sample ever where we didn't detect any. So we really do find them everywhere that we look. They,、um, compared to other sites, that's a really good question. I think 
you know, you can look on these maps where people have reported PFAS in their waters, and every time you look, there are more dots on the map. So I think every time, the more we look, the more sites we're going to find. Um, so I, it's hard to say if we're more or less contaminated than other sites. I think really PFAS is a global issue, and, and it really is everywhere. And now yesterday, the big news to come out, the EPA announced new health advisories to sort of guide uh, local officials on how to uh, handle PFAS. What can you sort of tell me about these new health advisories and what about these health advisories are so significant? Yeah, they're, you know, it was sort of eye opening to see the numbers that the EPA put out because they are so much lower than what's been proposed previously. So the previous number was 70 parts per trillion for PFOS and PFOA, two of these chemicals, and the new numbers are super low, 0.004 parts per trillion, which is honestly below the detection limit of how, how we can measure them. So it's really kind of what the EPA is saying is that there really isn't a safe concentration for a chemical like PFOA. Um, and I know a lot of toxicologists have been pushing for this for a long time. It's like I said, though, it, it was a really big change and this is going to have a lot of really important implications for everything, regulations, drinking water treatment, um, risk communication. It, it really does. It really was a really big change. And you mentioned it there, the levels that they're advising uh, that they are saying is unhealthy is so small that it can't even be reliably measured. I've seen anywhere from two to four parts per trillion is where it starts to get a little bit more reliable. Can you sort of tell me what that means? Why is, why is such a small amount enough for this sort of advisory? And how do they know that such a small amount is potentially dangerous? All right. So, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely coming from more from the chemistry perspective rather than the toxicity side. Um, but my understanding is that they take all of the available toxicity data and then use that to estimate a safe level and then put um, additional factors of safety on top of that, you know, to really make sure that we're protecting the most vulnerable population, people in our population. So they're looking at the toxicity data that's out there, and that's how they're setting these numbers. And you mentioned you're coming from more of a chemistry background there. Can you sort of uh, explain to me how, with this small of amount, how does how does that work chemistry-wise for putting it a little bit in perspective? How much how much PFAS actually is that and compared to how much there is in, say, firefighting foam, which here in Madison is sort of the uh, big driving force of that PFAS? Yeah, the concentrations we're talking about for drinking water are even at the old health advisory of 70 parts per trillion are small. You know, we're, for other contaminants that we study, we might be cared, caring about concentrations that are orders of magnitude higher. So even before this new um, announcement, we were, were already concerned about very low concentrations, and it actually poses a lot of challenges in the lab because, because these chemicals are everywhere. You have to be really careful with contamination. You have to really know what you're doing. Um, and we can push our detection limits to, you know, 0.1 nanograms per liter, 0.2, something like that. Um, yeah, so there's there's a lot of challenges with measuring these chemicals um, from the lab perspective. And can you elaborate on that a little bit? How do you, what are you doing in, when you're studying these PFAS chemicals? What, what, how, how do you study them, I should, I should ask? Yeah, so we, um, what my group does specifically is we're looking at how these chemicals move in the environment. They're really interesting, for better or for worse, chemicals because they're surfactants. And so they're, they like to be kind of everywhere. Like they like to be in water. They like to be on sediment. They like to accumulate in foams. 
And so um, we really look at how these chemicals move around, which is important for informing our understanding of where we need to worry about these chemicals, where we might need to do remediation and that sort of thing. Um, the lab process for a water sample, you know, you take a large volume of water back to the lab and then you do an extraction process where you concentrate it. Um, and so if we wanted to get to these super, super low levels, you would have to take a large volume of water and concentrate it down. Um, we usually work with like half a liter or something like that. Um, and then you use a mass spectrometer on the other end to actually measure these chemicals at these low concentrations. And then you mentioned there, you you sort of look at how they're moving around. How do they move around? When you, know, when you study them, you said you study them in surface water. Do they tend to just sit in lakes and rivers and things like that? Or do they eventually, uh, say, move downstream? And from there, where, where do they go? Oh, everywhere is the answer. They're compared to a lot of uh, sort of more persistent or kind of legacy contaminants we've worried about for a long time, like PCBs are a good example. Something like PCB is pretty sticky. It's going to stick to the sediment. It's not going to move as freely with the water. PFAS, while they are found in sediment, they also dissolve in water. And so they're going to go anywhere that water goes. So they're going to move with the river. They're going to end up in our Great Lakes. Um, there's people here in Wisconsin who even been measuring PFAS and precipitation, like rainfall. Um, and so this is one of the reasons why we really find these chemicals. They've been found everywhere, everywhere around the world. And so now with these new EPA health advisories, how are you as sort of a researcher, how, how does that sort of change how you are approaching PFAS? Yeah, I mean, it definitely puts things in perspective. I mean, you know, people have been saying for a long time that 70 parts per trillion, the old advisory was much too high. And this is kind of taking a different a different look at it because it's, it's very, very low. Um, I don't, yeah, it definitely makes me sort of look at a lot of our data that we've generated and think about, um, you know, we've been like, oh, this is sort of a trace level. And like, is it really a trace level now? It, it definitely makes me look at some of our data with a different light. And then sort of going along those lines, what happens now for us who have trace amounts of this chemical in drinking water? How, how should we move forward and how should cities and counties move forward now that we have this new information from the EPA? Yeah, this is going to be really challenging. I mean, you know, to, to get to concentrations that are below those health advisories is going to be very hard. Um, like I said, we, it's hard to even measure that low. And so I think probably most waters will have concentrations above those levels um, is really what those numbers mean to me. Um, and so that's going to give us a lot of challenges. You know, I don't know. We It's good to know what's in your water. I think the more data we have that's helpful, we can, you know, prioritize sites that have or drinking water sources that have more of these chemicals. Um, but there are, there's going to be a lot of implications from these numbers coming out that are, it's really going to affect a lot of water utilities. And Chrissy, we're running up against the clock here. Do you have just any final thoughts, anything final that you'd like to share with me here? No, I mean, it's, it's good to see we've been working on this issue for a long time, and I know it's, it's great for people to learn more about it. It's a really complex topic, and I think it's really good to see EPA moving with some more protective um, numbers to try to protect human health, which is really, really important. I've been talking with Chrissy Rumacall, Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UW-Madison. Chrissy, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me.
time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. A new report from The Sentencing Project reveals that violent crime rates among American youth dropped in the early part of the pandemic, despite media headlines indicating a surge in such activity. Jonah Chester with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. From Fox News to the New York Times, media coverage over the past few years has sounded the alarm on a purported increase in violent crime among kids. But a new report finds those claims have been false or largely overstated. The research by the Sentencing Project reveals youth violent crime rates in categories from murder to robbery decline nationwide from 2019 to 2020. Ann McCullough with Youth Justice Wisconsin says her organization has noted similar declines locally. But she says unfounded stereotypes can still have long-term repercussions. Negative stereotypes about youth, service gaps, and structural racism are the foundation for the youth-related criminal justice policy and system that we have today, nationally and in Wisconsin. To keep kids out of the system, the report's authors propose diverting young people accused of crimes into restorative justice programs, placing more counselors in schools instead of police, and providing positive development programs for kids who have gone through the system. With the impending closure of the Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake Youth Prisons, McCullough believes now is the time to open a new chapter in Wisconsin's youth correction system. But she adds alternative programs are facing significant staffing shortages, an issue she contends could be remedied in part by new investments from lawmakers. Public health models for violence prevention work, but they also need to be funded and supported at the same level as our correctional system in order to see a significant change. According to the Annie E. Casey Foundation, juvenile arrests in Wisconsin drop by about 70% from 2011 to 2020. Richard Mandel, who wrote the Sentencing Project report, explains national crime rates among kids and teens have been declining for years. Over the past 20 years, the share of arrests of kids under 18 have fallen by more than half, and they continued to fall. A lot of this has been tied to the pandemic. The share of crimes that were committed by kids went down, and despite that, we're seeing this narrative of youth crime out of control. The Sentencing Project report only includes data up to 2020, the most recent year the statistics are publicly available, and its authors acknowledge future data may reveal that youth crime rates have increased since then. But they note that would be understandable, given the mental health impacts of the pandemic on kids, and think it shouldn't serve as rationale to push for more punitive juvenile justice policies. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. This week is the final text segment of our beer feature, Fermenting Wart. Producer Colin Morgan brings it home with what makes beer sour and why we may like sour foods in the first place. This is Fermenting Wart. I'm your host, Colin Morgan. Sour beer. I just had this great beer that was brewed with sour gummy worms, and it was so fetch. Right. We should stop trying to make fetch and gummy candy beers happen. Gosh, what even is my life? Okay, so a relatively recent trend has been sour beer, and I've talked about sour beer before, but I'm going to talk about it again. Why would anyone even make a sour beer? It sounds kind of gross, but trust me, the sour part isn't even the grossest part. Look up beer pellicle on Google Images if you're into grossing yourself out a bit. Anyway, 
I did an interview with Funk Factory Guzaria a while back, and we talked about some sour styles and what makes them appealing. Today, I'm going to talk a little more about that, some styles that have arisen recently that I find unappealing, and why I think everyone should try some sours anyway. Also, when it comes to beer tasting, you can like what you like. Don't let anyone, especially me, tell you that your taste is wrong or maybe slightly immature, even if it is just a little bit. You like what you like, and that's just fine. And it's also okay to be wrong sometimes. So first, what makes a sour beer? Actually, first, what makes a beer not sour? That's an interesting question. Because honestly, have you ever had a beer that wasn't a bit sour? One of my favorite beers, New Glarus's Spotted Cow, I think is distinctly sour. But for most people, that is not what comes to mind. Next time you are sipping a beer, try to see if you can pick out a hint of sourness, because it's probably there. Sourness comes from acidity. If y'all remember from chemistry class, an acidic solution has a greater availability of hydrogen ions than pure water with a pH of 7. On a basic tasting level, if you have some acidic solution like lemon juice in your mouth, you should taste sour. Those hydrogen ions interact with taste buds to produce that effect. Want to dive into that? I know I do, and I will speculate wildly. So we know fish, like the swimming kind, can sense acidity in their surroundings, probably to detect changes in water composition or something like that. So we may have kept our ability to detect sour from our common ancestor with fish, but that seems a little unlikely. A better explanation is that foods high in the essential nutrient vitamin C are naturally acidic, and perhaps we evolved to detect those foods high in vitamin C. Or, perhaps, fermenting fruit that are more acidic are safer to eat, as a high acidity drives off harmful bacteria, usually. And so maybe our ancestors learned to eat and detect those fruits. Whatever the case is, it's at least fun that we can taste sour. So beer, back to beer. That's right, this is supposed to be about beer. Okay, so microbes, like brewer's yeasts, can tolerate acidic environments, and in fact make their environments more acidic on purpose. Typically, a beer will start around a pH of 5-ish and work its way down to around 4.5, 4.4. For a reference, that's about as acidic as tomato juice and more acidic than the typical cup of coffee. Pucker up. And that's just regular beer. Sour beer, on the other hand, can get way out of hand. But why? For most brewers, sourness is a sign of infection with an acid-producing yeast or bacterium, which is a no-go for selling a clean beer. Sour beer is specifically made to encourage those microbes, and this can be done in a variety of ways. The most common way that you will see around here, some brewers withstanding, is the kettle sour. You can probably find some beers that are even marketed as kettle sours. They are typically produced in a similar fashion to a regular brew, except they are either inoculated with the sour culture in the kettle or dosed with a good amount of food-grade acid in the kettle. 
The latter way seems to produce a one-noted sour that is okay for certain styles, but in my opinion is lacking that nice kind of rounded flavor that an inoculated beer can get. That being said, kettle sours are usually simple in their sourness, tangy, more often fruited. This particular style is the one that's been going a little bonkers recently, it seems. Overfruited sour is a term that I've heard a couple of times or the sour pastry beer, perhaps. Both seem to be just slightly soured, usually poorly attenuated, with a little extra quote-unquote flavor, as much as the brewer can smash into it. But that's just me. I've had some excellent fruited kettle sours that were light, refreshing, fruity, and really great on a hot summer day. The less typical sour that is my preferred is the one that is soured over a long period of time sometimes years. These are usually made of a dense, complex wort that feeds a trophic cascade of organisms that consecutively dominate the wort environment, then give way to the next organism as the environment forces them out. Each unique microbe in this trophic cascade imparts its own character to the beer and allows the beer to continue its journey to completion over time. These are sometimes referred to as wild beers or spontaneous beers, although not are all truly spontaneous. These beers are really, really, truly special, trust me, when they're done well. And there's nothing else like them in the beer world. Some examples, the best examples, come from Belgium. Rodenbach, Boone, Cantillon, Fontinen. But there are also some American brewers that are doing really, truly inspiring work with these spontaneous beers as well. Russian River has a large collection of barrels and fooders that produce excellent beer. And closer to home, New Glarus dabbles in their wild fruit cave. And Funk Factory here in town makes spectacular spontaneous beer. It's funky stuff, hence Funk Factory. And probably not for everyone if I had to guess, but it is unique and beautiful and pairs so well with so many foods. So please try it. I won't beg, but I will ask sternly, please. Anyway, those sour beers are something to behold, and if you are even new to beer, I would recommend picking one out. Thanks for listening. It's 6.43 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Our newest Thursday feature is an excerpt from Out of the Box a new local podcast dedicated to supporting people who are incarcerated or who, or who have been incarcerated in the past. This week, host D. Stark talks with John McGee, currently incarcerated at the Red Granite Correctional Institute in central Wisconsin. Mr. McGee shares with us his unique insight on prison life and his plans for the future. All right, and you're listening to Out of the Box Podcast here with John McGee. How you doing, man? Uh, I can't complain, man. I'm blessed and highly favored. So for the people that don't know you, could you tell everybody what prison you currently are at? Well, I um, 
name is uh, John McGee. I'm from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm currently at uh, Red Granite Institution. Red Granite. How long have you been there? I have been here now. I'm currently about 12 years. 12 years? And uh, how long have you been in altogether? Well, I've been incarcerated for 32 years. What are some of the things that you've learned about yourself and in, in life in general during your time in prison? Well, I've learned to live life respectfully with my uh, fellow man. And what that means to me, and I realized I didn't have to cop out in order to survive. God gave me a sound mind and a tool to earn honest wage. Which means to me, I didn't have to rob, steal, or kill anybody or sell drugs to survive. All I had to do was uh, apply myself. So what are your, some of your future plans um, in the institution and when you get out? Well, my future plans for right now is finish school and earn my associate's degree through the Pell Grant program that they have here at Red Granite. What would that associate's degree be in? My associate's degree is in, uh, is in arts right now. In the uh, liberal arts? Yeah. You know, my plans is, is really is, is like volunteer work. You know, whenever I get the opportunity to speak to someone young or old, I try to encourage them to do the right thing. I try to help people within the prison system. And I would like to continue to help people, you know, when I get out. You know, uh, you know a lot of my plans is, you know, to do voluntary work. You know, I, I um, you know, like to help, you know, and, in shelters or whatever area I can uh, give back because a lot of people have helped me since, you know, you know I've been in, in incarcerated and uh, helped me um, survive this. So, you know, I, I think the best thing is, to, you know, to try to help, help others. Yeah, that's very honorable of you. From your experience, how would you tell people first coming into prison or people that's been in prison for a while how they can use their time in the institution to get their life back on track? Well, you know, from my experience, you know, for telling people who just came into prison, you know, examine yourself. You know, ask yourself tough questions such as, this is the type of life I would really like to live. And I'm truly happy being in prison and away from my loved ones, family, and friends. You know, you know, I always encourage them to finish school. I also think it's important to seek the wisdom of others because they might give you some information that might, that may inspire you to, you know, to get your life back on track. Yeah, that's some really good advice. So what does a platform like this mean to you and the inmate community? Well, this platform can give uh, a person such as myself a voice, a chance to be seen in a different life. A lot of men such as myself have been in prison for over 30 years, and we're not the same man or men when we came into prison. This platform allows the public to see us for who we really are, you know, for ourselves, too, and hopefully they will join in the fight for prison reform and, you know, and release. What are some of the more positive things that you've learned during your stay? Well, one of the, you know, the positive thing is I've learned, you know, since I've been in prison is to think outside of myself. You know, that's, you know, that's the most thing, you know, you got to take in consideration of your fellow man, you know, how things may affect someone else. You got to think outside of yourself. You know, you can't be selfish. You know, I wasn't wasn't raised like that and you know and you know my belief is you know you know try to help your fellow man try to encourage him right 
Um, so what are your thoughts on co-parenting um, while in prison? Do you feel like that it can be done? And if so, how would one do that? Well, co-parenting is, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's something that um, communication is a must, you know, between um, parents. And, you know, it can it can be done, but, it's you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, kind of tough, you know, when you're dealing with a situation where children, you know, are involved because, you know, a lot of people, you know, they want their, they want their fathers back, you know, in the community. But the best thing you can do as a father in prison is try to reach out to your, your child or your children as much as you possibly can and try to be there, you know, the best you can and try to understand, you know, what they're going through and hopefully they can understand what, what you, you're going through. But I think it's between the, you know, husband and wife, you know, the main thing is to communicate and kind of keep things out in the open and be upfront and honest. Yeah, that's really sound advice. So what would you tell people that are going through a situation where they can't get in contact with their significant other or they can't get in contact with their family or friends and, you know, they kind of fell off. What advice would you give those inmates that are going through that type of situation? Well, I mean, in every situation is different because everybody has a different set of beliefs. And I have dealt with some individuals who have went through that. And my advice with them was to pray about it. You know, don't become angry and get upset and burn a bridge because people have a tendency to get mad and lash out because people are not, you know, right them. But I just say, you know, pray about it and stay patient and be diligent. You know, you got to be diligent. Even though the person may not be responding, you still have to do your part, you know, do your part. And hopefully somewhere down the line, the individual see that, that you put forth a, a effort. You know, the best thing you can do is stay positive, you know, and do positive things. And hopefully your family or loved ones can see the change within you. Absolutely. If you could say one thing to the community, to the DOC, uh, to the to our listeners, what message would you like to put out there? Well, the message I would like probably put out there more than anything. Because one thing I see in society, you know, as a whole is just seeing like, we don't know how to love one another. We don't know how to love ourselves, and we don't show respect towards one another. I remember when I think of the days of old and what our community went through, we really helped one another. We really looked out for one another. If somebody didn't have something, you know, we would help those individuals. But now, you know, in this money-driven society, everybody is, you know, only only thinking of themselves. So I think, you know, to me, the world is, you know, it lacks, you know, love. You know, we don't have patience for one another. So I think if we can love ourselves and love others, you know, I think, you know, that would be the best, you know, overall thing for all of them. That was well said, man. Um, that's awesome. Um, well, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. To Sir With Love is the title of a 1967 British drama starring Sidney Poitier. The plot is simple. A stern teacher is tasked with educating a class of unruly students. 
Now, that movie shares its title with a song in which the singer asks, how do you thank someone who's taken you from crayons to perfume? I guess a better question for Goldsmith, Bill Howard, in regards to his children are, how do you thank someone who's taken you from clean hands to being covered in metal shavings, burn holes and calluses? I guess it really doesn't fit with the melody, but the question is fair. In this archival edition of Father's Day episode of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields introduces us to Bill Howard and his definition of fatherhood. My name is William L. Howard, Lyle, after my grandfather. You know, sometimes I had to watch the kids, and I also had to do work, so I'd bring them into the shop, and uh, I'd let them play with stuff that, you know, was non-lethal. It allowed me to spend more time with my kids uh, when they were little, and they started pretty young, uh, I think eight or ten or something like that. Um, I think Aaron made his first ring when he was four. Of course, he had a little help from Dad, but... I wanted them to learn a trade, and the deal was they didn't have to do it. I didn't shove it down their throat, but I wanted them to, to learn it so that by the time they got out of high school, they had a trade as well as a diploma. And um, I didn't necessarily want them to be artists because I've been an artist all my life, and I know what it's like <laughs> to make a living as an artist. But uh, unfortunately, they developed a love for it, and they're they're both still at it, so... I guess it worked out in that respect. And then later, Aaron decided he didn't like goldsmithing that much. He liked blacksmithing. So then we got into blacksmithing. And um, then he, he learned the trade in blacksmithing for me as well as others. We would spend nine weekends every summer down at the Renaissance Fair. And the kids loved it. Uh, they were little when we first started in, uh, I think it was 1984. And they were still, you know, just, just barely out of diapers. And it was uh, it was like growing up in a circus for them. And anyway, the kids would help out at the booth, and then most of the time they just ran around and had fun. You know, we'd dress them up, and they'd hang out with their buddies. And a lot of the other performers and such at the fair had kids. And uh, um, it was sort of like being at a carnival, <laughs> you know. There was, was like a circus atmosphere. There were... Lions and tigers and elephants and you name it. They had all kinds of critters floating around and there were parades and uh, everybody got to dress up and, you know, which was much more fun for the uh, the kids than it was for the adults. Working in 95 degree heat and velvet and brocade is less than desirable sometimes. And um, I think Missy was in her 20s before she finally admitted that fairies weren't real because she just had a beer with one the day before. This was when she was older, not when she was little. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the second generation of the Howards to be involved in the metal arts business. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the, the, the privilege of having someone in my family teach me this trade. I just kind of fell into it and was lucky I found something I loved to do at an early age. And some guy once said, if you, if you do something you love, you never work a day in your life which is uh, kind of true, I think, and uh, 
there are some days when it's better than others, obviously, but uh, both my kids seem to like what they're doing, and they're doing very well. They, they have their own styles. I didn't, I didn't want them to, to be clones. I've never tried to train anybody to be a clone. I'm very proud of both of them. I mean, I've, I got them started, and I taught them a lot of stuff, but they also picked up a lot of stuff on their own, uh, especially in the blacksmithing department and, and with, with jewelry. Both of them have gone out into the world and, and worked with other people uh, and for other people and learned a lot, and I'm, I'm very proud of both of them. It, it makes me proud. Well, I hope they still continue to enjoy the work, as, as we all have so far, and that they make a good living, you know, for them and theirs, and um, that they're happy. Mostly, I just care if they're happy. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Field. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Emily Kaysinger was our headline writer. Your reporter was Layla Ma. Special thanks to feature contributors D-Star, Jennifer Fields, and for the final time, Colin Morgan. Thank you for everything, Colin. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slee. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, never miss an episode of WORT's local news. Listen to the news as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.